Amen. Well, it is so good to be with you all here today. Um, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, you can go ahead and open it up to Isaiah chapter 9. So I can't imagine a better place to be on the morning that we celebrate Christ's birth than right here in God's place with God's people. You know, many people like to stay home on a day like today, to be with family, but I do want you to hear me out. We're with family this morning. You know, me and Kendall, uh, we live 18 hours from home. We don't yet have children, um, and so Christmas can often feel like a lonely time for people like us. Um, but when I look across this room and see so many people I rightly call brothers and sisters because of what Jesus has done, it just thrills my soul. So thank y'all for being our family today, and we're so excited to get to open up God's Word with you this morning. So thank you for coming and spending Christmas with us this morning. Um, we're going to get into the Word, and I'm really excited about it. But before we get started, kids across the room, wherever you are, my small ones, uh, and some spouses, I'm sure this is probably true for you too. Um, I know some of you are irritated to be here this morning. I, I hear that. I get that. Um, presents are at home. Food's at home. Warmth is at home. Bed's at home. I get it. And yet you're here, listening to me. But I encourage you this morning to give me a few minutes of your time um, because today we're going to get to look into God's Word and see a gift that is greater, more spectacular, more filled with joy than anything that is at home under the tree. We're going to get to look into truths that are so marvelous and so spec spectacular that Peter says the angels wish they could look into them. We're going to get to look at God's gospel and why it's so good. So if you all follow me there this morning, I look forward to it. You know, one of the things I enjoy getting for Christmas, and I get them every year, and it always irritates my wife to no end to buy them for me, are books. I, I ask for books. I love books. Um, I get books every year. I love a good story. And some of you do, too. Some of you are readers and love a good story. But why? Why do we love stories? Why do we love stories about light springing from darkness? Why do we love stories about good triumphing over evil and kings slaying demons and dragons and rescuing people? Why is it that we all love these stories? Well, this morning I'd posit to you, we love these stories because they reveal something much deeper and much truer about the very fabric of the universe that we live in. They reveal something deeply true that every one of us needs. See, we believe as Christians that life really will come from death. We really believe good will defeat evil. We believe the king really will defeat the dragon and save his people. In fact, we believe he already has. And that's why we're here today. Because a king didn't just come and save Middle Earth. A savior didn't just come to a galaxy far, far away. He didn't walk through a closet to Narnia. He came here. It's not a fairy tale, it's better. C.S. Lewis called it true myth, a story that seems too good to be true for our world. The God of the universe has come into our place. The joyous, unyielding light of Jesus has cut into the black night of sin. That's why we're here today. That's why we love stories like this. So we're going to turn to Isaiah 9 this morning and look into God's word and 
is you sort of think about Isaiah a few weeks ago, Terrell Mitchell preached on Isaiah 6 and talked a little bit about Isaiah's commission. And when Isaiah was commissioned and called um, to go and preach, the people didn't listen to him, which is something that I'm sure no preacher ever has had to deal with since. But he goes out and he's told, nobody's going to listen to you, nobody's going to do what you say, and, and Isaiah sent out into that mission, and then in chapters 7 and 8, in his first prophecies, essentially what he's told is Assyria is going to come and ransack the country. There's going to be an exile, the likes of which Israel hasn't seen. It's going to be dark, it's going to be scary, and it's going to be horrifying for the people. And just like us, when we get bad news today, the people didn't respond wisely. They didn't respond with repentance. They responded with doubling down on their sin. They got really scared. They started to sort of get frightened and hide in their homes, and they only made things worse. And all of this led to this deep darkness that covered the land of Israel. It's almost like a fairy tale. When darkness covered the land, the lone prophet uttered a few words that changed the face of history. So if you will look with me in Isaiah 9, chapters one through, or verses 1 through 7. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So our story this Christmas day starts in the dark, which is really exactly where Christmas should begin. It starts where all human hope has run out, where everything seems lost, in the very place that takes on the persona of death and darkness until God steps in. See, in verse 1, it's really spectacular. It's like out of nowhere, a hope is given to the remnant. It says there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. But you see, Zebulun and Naphtali had just been and were about to be even more so ripped apart by war fulfilling the prophecy that had been spoken of in chapter 8. See, Assyria entered through this area of the country and just rampaged through, destroying everything they could find. And for the people that survived the invasion in that time, they just deported them to Assyria. They took everyone with them. There was just a small, faithful remnant of Israelites left. Life felt incredibly dark to them as they looked around. How could Isaiah look at them and their situation right then and say, there will be no gloom for you? 
All of life looked like gloom to them. God had brought them to contempt. He had judged them. They sat under the heavy hand of God's judgment. Assyria was destroying them. How could God promise joy? To northern Israel, it would have seemed like the darkest of dark times. Here in the text, you also see uh, this place identified with a place that's maybe more familiar to you than Zebulun or Naphtali. It identifies it with Galilee of the Gentiles. See, in, in the Old Testament times, Galilee was not the place that you wanted to be. Um, for some of you who might have been to Israel before, Galilee's just right there up at the very northern tip of Israel. It was a place where borders didn't really exist, where Jews and Gentiles really intermixed together. It was very poor. Anytime Israel got invaded, they got invaded through Galilee because they had the Sea of Galilee. People could sail their ships over and resupply through. It just wasn't a pretty place. It wasn't a nice place. It was a place people didn't want to be. You really only lived in Galilee if you had to live in Galilee. It was ripped apart by war. It was economically unstable. And it was full of Gentiles. Verse 2 describes it as a land of deep darkness. And when this passage is referred to again in the New Testament, Jesus actually refers to it as the land of the shadow of death. This was the gloomiest of gloomy places, the darkest of the dark. What good could happen in Galilee? See, when Syria came, they came through Galilee and once again destroyed it. But in this text, it says, God has made the land of the sea glorious. This dark place is now spoken of as awesome and beautiful and amazing. And you can imagine if we're sitting here 700 years before Christ's birth, that, that everybody reading this is confused. Here, us, glorious joy, they couldn't have imagined it. Because they would have felt gloom. They would have felt darkness. And that sort of cuts against what we think of when we think about Christmas, right? Because when we think about Christmas, when, when we think about this season, um, we tend to think of it as this really high energy, fun, sentimental season where we open presents and have a blast. But Isaiah shows us that then and now, the incarnation is first for the broken and the needy. Christmas is for people like us, those who feel the darkness. And some of you feel this more than others. Some of you, the last time Christmas happened in 2016, had loved ones sitting beside you who aren't here today. Some of you are maybe embarrassed because you couldn't spend a lot this year on Christmas. Some of you feel like your heart is its own personal Galilee, the place where the armies of the world, the flesh, and the devil seem to always invade. But I want you to listen to me this morning. God did not come into the world. God did not send his son to high-five and spend a sentimental day with people who have their lives together. He came now and then for the people who walk in darkness, people like me and you. And for those who find themselves in that darkness in this season, the first thing that the incarnation brings us is light. If you look in verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. 
Uh, a Christian philosopher by the name of C.S. Lewis once said, I believe, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but, but because by it I see everything else. See, this is what the light of Christ does when it shines on a people in darkness. What it does is it brings light and understanding and peace and comfort and joy to those it shines on. It lights up the darkness. See, that's what the incarnation is about. It's about bringing an understanding about God's purpose and God's plan and God's savior to the people like nothing else can. The incarnation at its very core lights up the darkness of the world. But in this text, 700 years before Jesus, before the light really comes into the world, what we actually see is that Isaiah speaks of it as a present reality. See, in the text, even just grammatically, he doesn't say the people who walked in darkness will see a great light someday. The light might shine on them. He says it has. See, this whole passage is written in a tense that scholars call the prophetic perfect tense. And it's the prophetic perfect because God's prophets and God's people can speak so surely and so clearly and so certainly of what God will do that they can say it before it's even happened. Isn't it encouraging today that God's promises and prophecies and words about us are so true and so certain that we can speak clearly and presently about them even when we don't necessarily experience or see it? A sovereign God can inspire that kind of confidence in a people. But how is God going to do this? How is God going to make the darkness glorious? Well, he's going to do it by sending a light. How else does someone drive out darkness except by light? So, um, as many of you know, I grew up in Alabama, which is very, very different than West Texas. In so many ways. Trees and rivers and rolling hills and mountains and... You know, there's a lot I miss about Alabama, but there is one thing that I do genuinely love about West Texas. And it's not what people told me I would love when I got here. See, when I got here, everybody told me that I would love the sunsets, which the sunsets are great. I'm not dissing on the sunsets. But I actually think I like the sunrises more. See, I drive to work pretty early in the morning, and almost every morning I get to watch the sunrise. And I can see it more clearly here than I've ever been able to see it anywhere else in my life. And it's really cool because it'll be really dark when I leave and by the time I get to work, it's like glorious and bright. As I drive from Sansi down to Western, it's like I can see little rays of light sending the darkness retreating all back across the sky. It looks like an unstoppable little army marching back against a much weaker foe as the sun just flames through the sky in the morning. And Jesus coming into the world was not unlike this. It was like for a second time in history, God spoke and said, let there be light. And beams of holy fire begin to tear back the darkness of the night sky. What's happening in this passage? It's as if a new creation is taking seed in Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee. God is doing something unlike anything he's done since the beginning of the world. He's speaking light into existence. He's sending light to his people. He's taking this unformed, dark mass, this void, and he's lighting it up with his creative power. God's telling his people that he has not forgotten them. 
He has not abandoned them. He's actually going to use this exile and this darkness to bless them because in spite of their rebellion and in spite of their sin and in spite of their unworthiness, this is the very place that light is gonna shine. And many years later, in this dark land, Jesus would begin his earthly ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. Not Jerusalem, not at the temple, but in this war-torn Gentile fishing village that was ravaged by war. It was as if God found as dark a place as he could just to show the kind of light he can bring into the world. The light rose on the darkest places and the darkness was never able to overcome it. And that is the same light, church, that we walk in today. We walk in the light because Christ has broken our darkness. He shattered it. It's, it's fleed. But we walk towards an even greater light. We walk towards a day where there won't even need to be a sun because of what Christ will do in the new heavens and the new earth. See, that's one of the fun things about every, almost every Advent text, almost every text about um, the coming of Jesus is it, it is going to happen, it has happened, and we look forward to it happening. See, they always carry colors of both Advents. See, when we celebrate Advent, we're not just celebrating Jesus coming into the world once, we're celebrating when he comes back too. And so this text actually gives us a beautiful picture of that as we celebrate the fact that light has come into the world in Jesus, but we look forward to a day when night is not even something that can be spoken of again. We live in between with hope from looking backwards and looking forwards. But when this light comes into the world, when God shines his light on these people, what happens? Well, according to this text, he brings joy. See, it says in verse 3 that you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. See, remember, Isaiah in this passage is speaking to a remnant. See, the hope of Israel had always been based back in Genesis 12 when God promised Abraham that he will make them into a great nation. And the whole Old Testament kind of leaves that promise up for grabs. You're, you're always wondering whether God will actually fulfill that promise. Because this would have been hard to believe as the borders of Israel were shrinking and shrinking and shrinking due to invasion after invasion after invasion. You would think that God's not going to make them into a great nation. We're going to just disappear. See, invasion is on the horizon and it seems like all is lost, but then God comes in with a promise to this shrinking nation in darkness that they're going to be multiplied. See, he says that, don't worry, Israel, you're actually going to grow. There's going to be an exponential expansion of Israel. There's a day coming when the boundaries are not going to press in, they're going to go out. And that's exactly what the work of Christ did, right? You see, this multiplication of Israel would not happen how anyone expected it to happen. It wouldn't come through a war it wouldn't come through political domination or some kind of imperialism. It would happen through the propagation and the spread of the gospel. See, Paul tells us in the New Testament that, that the real children of Abraham were always the ones who had faith in Jesus. They were always the ones who had faith. 
And so in a very true sense, you all represent the fulfillment of this promise. You represent God making good on what he said because we're the true children of Abraham by faith. God has made Abraham's seed into a great nation and we know that because 7,000 miles from the heart of Israel, we sit in Amarillo, Texas as part of the kingdom of God. That's good news. You see, we live in an age where we get to see this happen in real time. We see God's promises to Abraham 4,000 years ago being fulfilled in the present. See, people like me and you get to be a part of the gospel spreading across the nations. We experience joy because the kingdom is being multiplied. It's like God's taking care of several different problems for Israel. If darkness needs light, then their anguish needs joy. And he knows exactly what it's going to take to bring them joy. And that's what the gospel does. It gives us joy. It brings joy to us. See, the tone in this text changes really quickly from sadness to happiness, from anguish to joy. As the nation shrinks, there's despair, but as it multiplies, there's joy. And I want to hang out here just for a second to say, like, the work of Jesus is a joyful work, church. It's a happy thing. Jesus really does turn your despair into happiness. He really does turn your grief into joy. In a sense, we can truly say that our faith is the faith inviting people just into joy, In Jesus, there's true and greater joy than anywhere in the world. When we're inviting people to follow Jesus, we're not inviting them to accept just a better set of rules. We're not inviting them just to come and hang out with us on Sundays and give to the things we want to give to. We're actually inviting them into true and everlasting happiness. We're inviting them into joy. When you share the gospel with people, it needs to be an overflow of the joy that you have in what Jesus has done. That's why when this passage is quoted in Luke 2, which Victor preached on last night, the angel said that this is good news of great joy. I hope you still believe that today. I hope the gospel is still good news of great joy to you. Because when we lose that joy that we have in the gospel, we lose the one thing we have. See, the world can take all sorts of things from you. It took all sorts of things from Israel. It can take your land and your money and people. It can take relationships. But one thing the world cannot touch for those of us who are in Christ Jesus is our joy. It's been secured. See, Isaiah compares this joy that Israel has as the nation goes out and expands. He compares it to an abundant harvest. See, in a society where your sustenance for the next year was determined by the bounty of what you brought in, um, comparing to the incarnation to a harvest is really fitting. You see, I've never grown my own food. Um, I've always had, you know, things I could stick in the microwave and eat that were cheap, and, you know, it may make me bigger, but it... You know, I've never been wondering, like, where my next meal's going to come from, or, man, if it doesn't rain, then we're just not going to eat this next year. But in Israel, that's how they were. If the harvest wasn't good, then you weren't going to eat good. The economy wasn't going to be good. But when the harvest was good, you rejoiced for a full year. 
it kind of made a lot of your problems go away. The incarnation brings that kind of joy. Jesus has come, and with him, he's brought a harvest of joy that we won't run out of, that we can take our fill of. See, the good news of Jesus is that you can't draw down the joy that Jesus brings. In him is an inexhaustible fountain of ever-increasing gospel joy. See, one of the good news of the Christian faith is that you don't have to ration your joy with Jesus. You're not going to run out. You're not going to run down his supply. What the incarnation brings is joy unlike anything you can possibly imagine. Unlike anything you can possibly see. You see, if you look in the text, you can really see the argument building here. Um, After he talks about the harvest and all of that, he, he starts using the word for, and you'll see that a couple different times in the, in the passage, starting in verse four. And for is just a little word that works like because in the text. So if you see for, you can kind of read it like because. And so he's saying light has come, and this light brought joy because the nation's gonna be expanded. And that's gonna happen because this coming light is going to crush Israel's enemies. See, he says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be be burned as fuel for the fire. You see, Israel had been under oppression from the start, it seemed. Like as soon as God gives his promises to Israel and they sort of start their nation immediately, where do they go? Egypt, slavery. They get out of Egypt and what are they doing? Wandering. They finally get a home and what do they get? Exile. Then they get back and then what do they get? Exile number two. You know, Israel could never seem to get out from under the bondage of oppression Israel never seemed to be able to get out of the grasp of its enemies. It never actually seemed like the promises to the nation were going to take off the way they were supposed to. And ultimately, that's because their oppression and their problems were driven by a much deeper, darker issue. See, all of Israel's problems were due to the fact that Israel had sin. Israel never listened to God. They rebelled at every possible opportunity. And their sin continually and continually and continually sent them into bad parts of exile. But here's what God says is coming. He said there's coming a day where he's gonna shatter all of Israel's enemies and all of Israel's oppression just like in the day of Midian. If you don't get that reference, that's actually a reference back to Judges. See, Gideon had stood before the powers of Midian with 300 people an army that was not close to being able to take on such a big power, but God miraculously brought his people victory that day, and God says he's going to bring people victory like that from oppression again, but this time it's going to be so total and so irrevocable that the instruments of war, their swords and their boots and their bloody garments, they could just toss them in the fire and use them for fuel because there will be no need for them anymore. God gives us freedom from oppression in Christ. Our problem is no different today. We toil and struggle under the oppression and the destructive power of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world's broken in extreme and scary ways. 
In so many ways, our life in this world seems marked by despair and darkness. But church, Christ coming into the world has shattered the yoke of the oppressor. The gift of Christ is the gift of joy. Joy that our barns are full of grace and that sin is shattered like a broken army. It's victory over the dark, gloomy oppression of the world. Christ has brought and is bringing freedom. Sin and death are shattered and are being shattered and will one day lie completely shattered. And this is why on a, on a day like Christmas or at candlelight last night, we can sing lyrics like chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. Or we can sing Jesus has been born to set his people free from our sins and fears release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Jesus brings that kind of total irrevocable freedom. But see, the argument keeps building. Things get clearer. It seems like at this point, if you have a king who's going to be a light to the nation and he's going to expand the borders and he's going to bring full storehouses and he's going to shatter armies, then, then this king is going to be a mighty warrior. This king is going to be a powerful, powerful man. This king is going to be miraculous and amazing you know, he's going to be tall like Saul, but better. He's going to come and he's going to kick Assyria. He's going to slay the other nations. He's going to go and take over all these countries. That's, that's the king they're probably expecting up to this point in the prophecy. A king better than Ahaz. You know, a king stronger than David, wiser than Solomon. They're expecting somebody like this to rise up from the ranks. And so that the light will come to the nation. It'll bring joy and they'll end oppression. But the next little four should surprise you like it would have surprised them. He says, for us, a child is born. You can imagine the people sitting there in darkness hearing this. A baby? A child? What can they do? Nothing is the answer, right? Like, you all have children. You have to feed them. You have to clothe them. You have to put them to bed. You have to drive them places. They, they don't exactly become self-sufficient members of society for a very long while. A child. How's a child going to bring this? Well, if the incarnation brings light and the incarnation brings joy, then the last thing the incarnation brings us is a king. You see, in verse 6, it does say a child is born, a little baby. And this harkens back to Isaiah 7 when there's this prophecy that there's going to be a virgin that's going to give birth to a son that's going to save the nation. Isaiah's kind of pulling on that thread a little bit, and he's saying, this son, that son that I told you is going to be born, um, here's going to be some things about him that you need to know. The first thing is that his reign's going to be forever. The government's going to be on his shoulder. It's going to be expansive. This little baby is going to run everything. And this is really the great irony of Christmas, is that God stares down the invading armies of Assyria with a child and says that he's going to be king. It's going to have an expansive government. He's going to be better than King Ahaz, which is something that the Israelites would have really been waiting on, because Ahaz was terrible and did very little right. They, they had very little hope of a good king that would come. But what will this child king be like? If this little baby's gonna bring all of these things to the nation, then how, how could we possibly describe him? What could possibly be said about him? Who could he possibly be? 
And see, that's why in this text we get four different names of this king. We get four different looks at him. You see, he can't be described simply. This king would be so amazing, so awe-inspiring, so exalted that it's impossible to just sum him up with a couple of words. You know, sometimes something is just so amazing, so expansive, so wonderful, that a single name really can't encompass it. I mean, if you think about some of the most interesting people who ever lived, um, some of the most iconic people who ever lived in history, that they sort of surpass explanation. Um, This year, I read a really cool biography of Teddy Roosevelt, and he was just one of those guys that kind of surpassed explanation, right? Just an interesting guy. He was a warrior, a rough rider. He fought in the army. He, He was known for his military genius. And in his spare time, he also founded a new political party. He also became president. He was also a scholar. You might not know that about Teddy Roosevelt. He He read Italian and German and Greek and Latin and Hebrew. So just, you know, a unique guy. He's not an easy person to wrap your mind around. And and this figure kind of starts like that. He's not the kind of king that you can wrap your mind around. But he transcends anything that we could possibly imagine. See, see, the first thing that it says about this this child king that the government's gonna be on his shoulders, the first thing it says that we're gonna call him is wonderful counselor. And essentially what this means is this king's gonna be wise. He's gonna be intelligent. He's gonna be the embodiment of the king that Proverbs talks about. This king who can rule with complete wisdom and with complete joy and and never gets anything wrong. He'll have the wisdom and the answers and the direction that no other king had. See, Israel had had foolish kings up to this point. Kings who were prideful or kings who were stupid or kings who just didn't know what they were doing. He says, you're going to have a king who's a wonderful counselor. He can't be confused or confounded. He's going to be honest and true. He'll speak to the heart. He'll speak with the wisdom of the prophets and of the Proverbs. He's not going to be a politician with half answers and deception and no depth. He'll be a wonderful counselor. See, the Bible later in the book of Hebrews is going to say that when this king speaks, it's like a double-edged sword that divides the heart. No one gives him counsel. He is the counsel, the wonderful counselor. See, in Romans 11, when Paul ends his giant sort of explanation of Christian theology, and he ends with this doxology in Romans 11, he says, who has ever given the Lord counsel? It's a rhetorical question to say no one. This is not the kind of king that you give counsel. This is the kind of king that you go to for counsel. This king will be a wonderful counselor, which is ironic given that it is a baby. But wonderful counselor. But then the tone shifts pretty dramatically. The text says that we're going to call him mighty God, which seems almost blasphemous, right? It seems almost incorrect to say this about anybody but God. But this actually starts to make sense of the passage for us because everything that we learn about this light and this king and this victory and this totality um, in victory, this could really only ever be accomplished by somebody better than me and you, 
better than Israel's other kings. This could only have ever been accomplished by God. But but this identity with God is more interesting for more reasons than one. I mean, first off, God's presence with his people had been a huge problem. See, tabernacles and temples keep failing them. The people continually um, run God's presence off with their sin. Even Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, is going to utter this prayer where he says, you know, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Heaven and highest heaven can't contain him, much less this house that I have built. God's presence with his people was a problem. But this text seems to say that God's going to dwell with man. Everything logically said that God could not walk with his people like a normal king. But that's why Christmas is so spectacular. Because in the glory of the incarnation, God comes to dwell with man. I mean, don't miss how staggering this is. Don't miss how amazing it is. The mighty God of heaven who flung galaxies into the sky with a word. The God who gives life and breath to every living creature, who by his power upholds the very fabric of the universe, the one from whom everything from atoms to mountain ranges owe their existence. That mighty God of heaven shows up as a vulnerable baby in a stable, trusting himself to to the care of a mom who he himself allows to draw breath. It's mind boggling. That as Jesus nurses at his mother's breast, he's the one who actually sustains her. That as the wise men travel from afar, he's actually the one who leads them there. That even later, as the people yell, crucify him, he gives them the breath to do it. This is staggering. God with us. The mighty God of heaven come as a child to save us. But that doesn't even encompass it. You see, he goes on to say everlasting father. And don't get confused here. This isn't messing with our Trinitarian theology any. Um, You know, we have father, son, and spirit. This is the son. Some people try to use this as a text to undermine our theology there. It's not speaking of Jesus as the Father, but it's saying that Jesus, when he comes, is going to embody fatherly characteristics. See, the king in the Old Testament was spoken of as somebody who was supposed to exercise loving, fatherly care of his people. The king was supposed to be a picture of the benevolent care that God showered his people with. The king was supposed to, in a sense, be a father to the nation. David kind of exemplified this, but failed. Solomon tried and failed. Uzziah did and failed. This is going to be perfect, though. And it's going to last forever. This person's not going to die. He's going to be an everlasting father to his children. And and I find this name to actually be one of the most encouraging because what it's really saying here is that Jesus, this child, is going to be like a dad with his kids. He's going to care for them. He's going to give them shelter. He's going to love them. But he's never going to tire of doing it. See, Jesus is like a dad to us who never tires of saving us, never tires of providing for us, never tires of loving us, 
never tires of giving of himself to us, which is a picture that so many of you dads in this room represent, but Jesus does it on an even bigger and more everlasting level. He's not going anywhere. But then he says he's also gonna be the prince of peace. This king would reign as one who cares for his people, and instead of ushering in more chaos, is gonna usher in calm. This is not a chaotic reign, it's a reign of peace. And up to this point, peace is not something that Israel's ever got to claim. Israel's never been characterized by peace. But this peace is going to end all the exiles, the wars, the darkness. It's going to bring something new to Israel that they haven't experienced. But this king, this prince of peace, is going to bring a peace ultimately even better than the end to wars. He's going to bring the peace between God and man which Israel had so long needed. This is one of the reasons the incarnation is so important to our faith and to our theology, is see, God had to send his son as a man because Jesus had to be both God and man to do what we needed done. He needed to be a man so that he could live and take our place. He needed to be a man so that he could succeed where we failed. But he also needed to be God so that he could take the place of more than just one of us. But you see, God, in giving this prophecy, is giving Israel all this hope all these things that they need to know so that they can have hope in their darkness. And he ends by saying this is gonna be an eternal reign. It'll never end. It's prophesying the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. See, in 2 Samuel 7, it had been prophesied that someone would reign on David's throne forever, but there was one big problem with every single king up until this point, and that they had this pesky little issue of dying. Even the good ones. They would do a good job, and then they would die. Or they would do a bad job, and then they would die. But they died. But this kingdom will keep increasing. It will be eternal. It will go on forever. We will finally have a king who can sit on David's throne in the right way. It'll keep going and going forever and ever. This is the king that the incarnation gives us. The incarnation gives us Jesus. See, it's as if all these Old Testament hopes and themes, dreams and expectations were wrapped up in, this, in these names. The wisdom of Solomon, the presence of God, the care of a father, the increase of peace. Israel believed this would all come someday, but they never could have believed it would come in a single person. The long-expected hopes of Israel be wrapped up in this little baby. The desire of the nations will be seen in him. The joy of the world will exist in this person. When we speak of Jesus, we're speaking of every biblical hope lying in the humility of a manger. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians can say that every promise finds its yes and amen in Jesus. In Christ, we get all of the promises, but in the most unexpected ways. For who would have thought that the first words of God on earth would be the cries of a Galilean baby? The king comes as a child, not a warrior. But the incarnation gives us a king that fulfills every hope. And today I do hope this king gives you hope on this Christmas day. You see, whenever uncertainty arises in our lives and our paths seem unsure, let us remember that we have a king who is called Wonderful because he has amazing methods of assuring us, because his power is far beyond what we're able to conceive. When we need advice or when we need counsel, let us remember that our Jesus is called Counselor, 
When we need strength, let us know that he's called mighty. When death draws near and our hopes and our dreams crumble, let us remember that he is called everlasting. When we feel like we lack care and love, let us remember that he's called father and lives to care for his children. When we're inwardly and outwardly tossed about by the storms and trials of life and when Satan seeks to take our assurance from us, let us remember that Christ is the prince of peace. See, these names should give you hope. These names give us assurance. These names should make us like the song that we sang earlier, come and worship, come and worship Christ, the newborn king. And as the story ends, in verse seven, we learn that the government will have no end, but that he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, which in a way that no one in Israel could have predicted, that justice and righteousness was actually going to be accomplished by the cross. One theologian said it this way, he said, the cradle and the cross are hewn out of the same wood. See, ultimately this king will establish his kingdom with justice and righteousness. But we know this baby will grow into a man who's not lifted up on a throne, but lifted up on a cross. But in the most holy of ironies, that cross served as his throne, where Christ once and for all secured justice and righteousness. See, on that cross, he took our sin so that he could make us a part of his kingdom. He can treat us with gentleness and with peace because he took our curse. If you don't know this king, what better day to know him than the day when we come to celebrate the fact that he came into the world? When Spurgeon was preaching on this passage, he said, for this child is not born to you unless you are born unto this child. And I encourage you this morning, if you don't know him, you can. Trust him today. See, the world, um, if you're here and you're not trusting in Jesus, is warring for your trust. Politicians tell you to trust them. Your money tells you to trust it. Your cell phone tells you to trust it. Your job tells you to trust it. The world vies for your trust. But there is one worth trusting. One theologian put it this way. He said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, and our death. And so he sent us a savior. You can trust this savior today. It seems too good to be true. Can light come from darkness? Can joy come from pain? Can a king come from Galilee? In Christ it can and it did. This is the truest story and the best story and it's the story we ground our lives on because once upon a time God sent a child and he showed light into our darkness. Let's pray. God, we do come before you humbled this morning that you have sent your son into the world. That on our darkness, a light has shone. 
And we know now looking backwards that it was the light of Christ, the one who lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death we should have died and rose again on the third day so that all of us who have faith could come to know him in his resurrection. God, I do pray today that we don't move too quickly past the meaning of this season. That we look to the truth. That we recognize why all this happens. Because he sent a son. And that son paid the penalty for our sin. He paid it all. So that one day, we can stand in light with him forever. Amen.